Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast and the episode where we have a full-on existential crisis. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. This is a third consecutive episode dedicated to a movie released in the year 2000, which turns out to have been a year of absolute horror bangers. We've spoken about the Japanese teen bloodfest battle royale and the weirdo slasher Cherry Falls. And now we're on to the rejected X-Files script that started a horror franchise filled with ennui and zero actual villains. I'm talking, of course, about Final Destination, starring my teenage crush Dewan Sawa as the boy who cried death. Before we dive into our episode this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UK. and as usual, I'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's a tiny thing, but it really helps people find the show. Also, send us your thoughts on Twitter. Did you also fall into a pit of despair watching Final Destination? Did you also have a crush on Noan Sawa in an effort to be a contrarian and not fancy Leo DiCaprio during Leo Mania? I'd love to hear. Writer and presenter Louise Blaine comes back to the show to discuss all things Final Destination. Please note, as per usual, all of our discussions are spoiler-heavy pretty much from the start, and in this case, Louise and I lightly touch upon the Final Destination franchise, but we don't go into too much detail about the films. It's mostly about the first one. And with all of that said, please enjoy our take on the very first Final Destination movie. I always want to be the person that just goes, leave meeting. No, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be standing for this. No. <laughs> One day I want to do that too. Yeah. But I wish there was a, an option where you can do it with like an automatic huff, where the window just shut, like disappears in a puff of smoke. It's like, no, fuck this. I <sighs> shall not be recorded, sir. <laughs> <laughs> If I'm going to leave dramatically, then I want to leave dramatically. Yeah, with at least an emoji appearing or something. <laughs> so, uh, let us begin. Louise, I'm, I'm very pleased to be talking about Final Destination with you. The Final Girls' Final Destination sounds a little bit ominous, but here we are, nonetheless. Yes, at our very own Final Destination. <laughs> So, um, where do you stand with this film? Not necessarily the franchise, but the first, the original, the 2000 Final Destination. So, I didn't realise. I kind of thought that Final Destination was universally loved, and that's probably because I really love it. But I didn't realise that this has 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. What is wrong with people? Final Destination is like a masterpiece of our young times. It is magnificent. And there's a reason that it spawned all the sequels it did, because it's wonderful. And I didn't realise that people didn't like it. So I'm here fully in Final Destination's court. I'm on its side. 
Where, did you watch it at the time when it came out? Oh, yeah. I think I saw it. I saw it in the cinema. Yeah, I saw it in the cinema. And I loved it because I think I was, oh gosh, I was 15 at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was just coming in again. I just watched Scream and Scream 2. And I was beginning to sort of embrace this horror life. And all of a sudden, Final Destination comes along. And it's just this absolute hit of proper horror. And who needs like... I think it's the kind of reinvention of horror because who needs slashers when death itself can come and kill you? So I think I thought it was the coolest film in the world when I saw it when I was 15. And I still think it's great. I think I, I, I definitely will talk about kind of where it stands in the in the horror community. But before we dive into um, our thoughts on the film itself, can you try to summarize Final Destination for me briefly? Oh, yes. A group of teenagers are going to France uh, for a school trip. Alex gets onto the plane and has a premonition that the plane will crash, which means a lot of people then get off. And the plane then explodes just after takeoff, leaving him in one of my favourite scenes of all time, watching the plane explode in the sky. But then for the rest of the movie, it turns out death kind of still has a plan for them. And we can really, really enjoy that plan. Excellent summary. And I remember, I was trying to remember when I first watched the movie because it has this feeling. It's definitely attached to my teenage self because I was watching films, uh, already kind of slasher horror films at the time. And even in my memory, I never really thought of it as a slasher film. I always thought of it as a, as a teen movie mm. and perhaps really associated with kind of watching it as a teenager, watching it in the cinema, um, perhaps like renting it on, on DVD afterwards as a sort of thing I just put on to watch by myself. I never fully engaged with the sequel. So this film in my mind always kind of stood by itself. And I probably really watched it because I had a massive crush on Devon Sawa for the, you know, three, four years that he was a teen heartthrob. Um, bless him and his so, giant baggy shirt. <laughs> bless him. I mean, the reason I watched Final Destination, also the reason I watched Idle Hands, also the reason why I covered Idle Hands on this podcast. Of course it is. Um, I'm not proud, but that is the truth. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, re-watching this movie has been an incredible experience because I think you're completely right. This is marvelous and inventive and it is very unlike a lot of the scream-influenced slashers and teen horror films that came in the late 90s and early 2000s. Early 2000s. So what do you think makes it so different from that revival of, of teen-based horror that came after Scream? I think what's so lovely about it is the idea of it's so simple. We all understand it. The idea that was then repeated throughout the sequels with this perfect formula of a horrible thing happening. And can I just say that the more I see Final Destination as I get older, the worse that plane crash becomes. It is more disturbing every single time I see it because every because it does that lovely thing of noticing all the horrible things that something's going to go horribly wrong and it's all the things that we experience when we get onto a plane so it just does that so well and I think that's why it's so appealing it gives you that formula it's a really concise it if, if something is not scary or ominous it's not in the movie <laughs> you know it's just not there there's no flab to it and also 
I think what what kind of releases it from having to give you real character development across the board other than your main two is because it actually fits nicely into the stereotypes. You've got your jock and his girlfriend and you've got the guy that's a bit of an idiot and you already fit them into that. So you know they're going to die and you've already you've already kind of reclassified them in your head. So I think it's just this lovely beautiful and to say something's formulaic is sometimes to be a negative thing, but I don't think that's negative. I think the the formula of Final Destination is a beautiful thing. It's like Death's Plan itself, Anna. Oh, I mean, I know we're going to get existential in this episode, and I am looking forward to it. Because I don't think I've rewatched this movie in a long time. And I'm going through a whole like existential crisis during this during this season, Louise, okay. because I'm rewatching films that... At times, I have not rewatched really since I was a teenager mm. or in my early 20s. Yep. And time has passed, and I'm watching them with a completely different eye. I remember, I've always been afraid of flying, mainly because I binged watched the whole first season of Lost before having to go on a very long flight, and I was not okay. Oh, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> if it helps, if it helps. I once got onto a plane turned the little knob that kept the tray up and it broke no <laughs> i was i would have loved the fucking plane. i was holding it in my hand looking at all the strangers next to me going do i say this that's means we're gonna happens. die it's a final destination yes. that's what happens i just put it back leave. in I just, Get out. I just stuffed no. it back in leave leave well, i'm here what the fuck i'm here Unless this, this is mean, all part of my premonition in which case i'm gonna wake up back then and i'm really gonna have to get off that plane <laughs> I'm too tired to have an existential crisis. Please don't do this to me. I know I've met you in real life, so I know you're real. Because if I hadn't, I would be very worried that you're a ghost in the machine. (laughs) We are on Zoom. (laughs) So, like, you are completely right. Rewatching this film has just all the attention to detail, the things that are creepy, the things that are very quotidian, that are made creepy, by the filmmaking choices but that that initial scene just the nerves of flying the nerves of flying a long haul flight as well that kind of like teenage excitement is bubbling with tension when you watch this film as an adult it's so tense and again you can almost because i think it was one point it was meant to be an x-files episode wasn't it and then it got made yes. into a movie and you can almost feel that x-filesness you know, X-Files would always start with that pre-credit sequence where something happened and then you would get the credits mm. and then Mulder and Scully would investigate it. And it has that feeling. It's like, pow, 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 tense, tense, tense. Something's going to happen. And the lovely thing about it as well is it's not subtle. It's totally on the nose. It's consistently on the nose. It's not hiding anything. It's literally showing you the word terminal, flashing up the word terminal. And you're like, <laughs> oh gosh, something awful's going to happen. And I think... <laughs> It, looking at it through different tonal eyes, people could say this is dreadful, but it's not. Mm. It kind of elevates it to a lovely art form. And then, as we will probably discuss later, there's so much foreshadowing of what's going to happen to each one of the characters. So it's this kind of theatrical catastrophe, which we just love. And what makes it interesting is that you're right, there is that sort of x filey or Twilight zone formula to it, where it's something very everyday, very uninteresting, every man, every woman type characters that are thrust into something um, like an existential horror drama essentially and and it was originally pitched as a as an x-files episode and that got turned into a movie it was written with the purpose of kind of the screenwriter trying to get an agent um but what's 
really interesting about uh, about it is kind of the fact that the characters both fit into teen tropes and don't. Um, like you've mentioned, the jog, his girlfriend, who doesn't really do much as a character, but our main guy, Alex, Alex Browning, named so after Todd Browning, mm-hmm. the Freaks director. Um, all the little, all every single character has a name that's a reference so to a many horror names. filmmaker, which so is so many names. Excellent. Um, he's kind of the dude you would see in the background of teen of teen movies. He's not really. I mean, with no disrespect to Mr. Sauer, not a very interesting guy, except for the fact that he has this premonition. What do you make about him and kind of the rest of the the high school society that we meet through the through the survivors? So I, su- I suppose in that way, it's lovely and relatable because he's a sort of everyday person. He's not what he isn't if he isn't one of your tropes. And I don't even think Clear Rivers falls. I love that name. I'll just say it over and over again. I mean, and I love Ali Larter, so it's just a magnificent <laughs> thing. Um, she doesn't really... F- I mean, she's like... I suppose she could be under sort of kooky, misunderstood artist, which is obviously why she appeals to me. But it's just like... I think as a character, he feels relatable. He panics. He's afraid of things. We're all afraid of things. And he, he has a lot of... He has a lot of weaknesses and he has a lot of flaws. And I think like... I think even in that first, it, it does such a good job of characterizing them in there. His kind of over the top, obnoxiously mm. chewing curtains friend, you know, his relationship with him, and it's. I think it's all quite sweet and relatable. And he's and he's a massive mm. nerd, a huge nerd, which is also a fun thing. He's studying all his <laughs> books on plane crashes. Adorable. And he's got bad skin, and his clothes are terrible. He is not his hair. It's probably the worst 2000s, like, new millennium hair yep. I've seen in movies so far, next to Brittany Murphy's fringe in Cherry Falls. Oh my gosh. <laughs> have you, did you have to rewatch Cherry Falls? Oh, yes. Oh my word. Have you, that was last episode. Oh, I will I listen. really recommend it. I will listen. listen because I haven't watched it <laughs> since I saw it and I remember that, oh Jesus, that film. Right. Mm-hmm. I'll do my homework. I promise. I, I won't miss oh, episodes. Oh, yes. I mean, there could be there could be a whole Patreon special about the hairstyles of the new millennium teen horror films. You know, let me know if you want that. I'd always. <laughs> I want that, Anna. Make it for me. <laughs> don't, don't, don't listen to these listeners. Listen to me. I'm here. <laughs> but it's it's interesting because like we we get just these snippets of these teenagers, and they're so deeply uncool, yeah. Louise. They like I I understand this high school because this is not this over-the-top um tropey high school not even the really aggressive jockey supposedly cool people are that cool they're all so teenagey they also have bad skin and they dress really badly and their makeup is terrible and over the top and i just find that so much more um teenagey than making them um Oh, like over the top, um, beautiful or primed. And especially after the actual plane crash happens, once we get our core group of survivors, how do they change? And how does the film kind of start changing after the main inciting, um, accident happens? I love how obnoxious the jock becomes and not just obnoxious in like just sort of 
name calling, obnoxious in the fact that he 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 gets angry because he controls his life and he's never going to die. And he's so it's a massive and suddenly you're like, oh, you are doing this existential control thing. You're making this about that. You're not just making this about how gory everyone is going to be when they die, which also happens. Mm. You're going to have these characters questioning their lives and questioning everything that they do. And they, they do that from the get-go, really. And they all kind of... I always like whenever characters in these things cotton on. They, they immediately understand the assignment. And it doesn't take three people dying of the thing that's definitely the thing to convince them. Turns out in Final Destination, they all go, actually, the reason that we've dodged this is because of you. We should probably listen. And we are, mm. you know now going to die in this. So I, I find it's their embracing of that and their questioning existentially their entire, you know, their entire purpose of being. And also, I'd like to say, I really enjoy Claire's sense of complete rebellion, which I did not expect. She's like, let's go and see your dead friend in the morgue. It's quite exciting doing things that you're not supposed to, isn't it? And you're like, what a surprise. That just came complete left field. I love you even more. Let's go to the morgue together, Claire. <laughs> I'll hold your hand I mean, on the way to the morgue. Claire is a by-the-numbers old girl of the late 90s. <laughs> and her affinity for Henry Miller, that is the first thing we see about her, and for morgues, is completely in tune with the character. Yeah. And also, that scene, and I'd forgotten about it, where they're talking about her sculpture of him. <laughs> Listen. So then he calls the springy head guy. And it, and she says, it's not about what you look like. It's about how I feel yeah. about you, Alex. <laughs> now, I would like to do a digression here. And I don't want to disrespect your love for Ar um, Harry Larter. <laughs> did you just confuse her with Ari Aster? It's okay. It's quite late. <laughs> no, I did not. Although <laughs> I, 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 now I'm gonna. Um, can we talk about Clear Rivers? Mm -hmm. Because. I would like I would like you to explain yourself, Louise Blaine, in your love for Claire Rivers. <laughs> because <laughs> she's such a nerd. She's so weird. And she's like I, <laughs> I think I just like the idea that she's just sitting there with her headphones on and she's kind of feeling attuned to this whole thing. Cause she basically explains it to him. And I'd never really listened to it before because that scene is terrible. But mm. she basically said, you know, I felt the things that you were feeling, but I didn't understand why. And it was because this, she's an empath. Yeah, well, no, no. I think what she meant was that she was feeling like the omens, wasn't it? It wasn't, yeah, yeah. That she she kind of was tapped into the whole terminal thing, or when he picked mm. up the when the magazine that she dropped is the Diana crash when he's handed it back to her. And yes, she, and, you know that kind of thing is like she's seeing the signs too, and that, mm. I I like her. I think she's silly because then I really like her in the second one as well. Like, and then it just makes me sad what happens. I just love the fact that she owns, she lives by herself because of a very tragic backstory that she explains to us yes. in a not so great scene. Yeah. But she also owns a cabin in the woods that she then becomes a solution for, um, for Alex to just go and nerd out and find out how, how to actually maneuver around death. Mm -hmm. Um, but she's, I find her both very endearing and very ridiculous because it's like every cliche of weird old girl, old girl thrown oh, yeah. at this one character 
but also make it extra kooky because she lives by herself, but she comes from a broken family, but it's okay. She's really deep because she reads Henry Miller. Also, and Henry Miller is a bit sexy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just instantly think about that. I'm, But I'm an empath meme <laughs> that's going around TikTok now where she's like, I sense death through you because I'm an empath. <laughs> I will not stand I for this. <laughs> I won't stand for this. I won't stand for this. How come you get away with you know, being in love with him with his absurd bagginess. And we can't just be like, okay, she's just she's just the gender-flipped strange version of him. I will give you what, she is uh, much more attractive than Dewan Sawa is in this movie. Correct. He has the worst hair of his entire life, his entire career, uh, the worst skin, worse and the Casper. worst fashion sense. I'm not going to belittle him when he was a child. <laughs> Only when he's an adult. That would be me. I, ju- I judge myself, Louise okay. Blaine. Okay. <laughs> but what do you make? Uh, I love the um, the jock character and Sean um, William Scott's Billy as well, who is just a, a very a very sad little clown oh. who gets a terrible death scene. Is it exi- is it an existential question to ask? Is it possible to see him and just the word Stifler not just pop up in your head? Like he doesn't have any other name. I mean, no. I heard them say something about Billy's death, and I was like, who was Billy? Oh, Steffler. <laughs> but he is, I mean, he is the most endearing 90s presence, isn't he? I mean, he, mm-hmm. he, I mean, I don't even really know what he looks like now, but I imagine he's just the same in some kind of oversized hockey top talking about <laughs> ridiculous things and gurning. I mean, it wasn't even a teen movie if he wasn't in it. Poor tragic oh. Billy asking about whether he's going to die in a car accident or i mean he's 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 the least um he's the least cool character that mm. i think he's ever played like he's he's mostly pathetic he is i mean they're all kind of pathetic because they are teenagers awkward angry teenagers who have been suddenly are now considering their own lives their own existences the possibility of death the possibility of an afterlife being a real thing i mean how do you think, uh, this is kind of a two-parter question. We were surprised at the start of our chat that this has such a low standing in the horror community mm. and in Rotten Tomatoes. But when you watch it, it has this like quite meaty existential themes at the heart of it, also wrapped up in like schlocky, very effective and quite like X-Filey, direct to the point, no subtleties filmmaking. What's wrong with that? I can't reconcile the two things. But do you think it's because it's a quintessential teen movie? Because So the people that were reviewing it at the time were mm-hmm. not teenagers. but the, So they were looking at it going, it's cheesy, it's schlocky, it's predictable, it's gory. And at that point, horror wasn't reviewing well at all, was it? Mm-hmm. Horror was not. after. I mean, obviously Scream was hitting heights, but after, everything after that became a law of diminishing returns. But mm-hmm. what we saw, and I think what we still see is smart, introspective characters who, while fitting into these loose tropes, are addressing real things. I mean, the fact that it's Tony Todd coming into the morgue with his big noisy secateurs or whatever he's doing, basically, screams knife, Tony Todd's metal things. It's like, what are you even holding? But sure, please be more menacing. But I mean, he comes in and he's all, you know, 
deaths. What was it? The thing that I said that I absolutely loved, I even took a note of it. What was it? Uh, no. There are no mistakes in death. That's the what In death, there are no accidents. That's oh. it. In death, there are no accidents. And I really liked all that stuff. I mean, him coming in with his braces and being all menacing. Like, I think while that's on the surface super cheesy in camp, I like the... I mean, death does come to us all, Anna. And I yeah. think what Final Destination does with us is... I mean, I was coming through here to record this podcast. And obviously we had oh, our dear. scheduled time. And I thought, right, I'm going to pour myself a hot water bottle, make myself a cup of tea. So I went into my kitchen and I started noticing there, you've got yours too. I started noticing all the little things. So yes! there was a tiny, I, I literally earlier was hanging a print and there were two little things on the wall that had little sharp pins on them. And when I brought them into my kitchen, I didn't automatically put them in the bin because I thought they would scrape through the bin bag. So I left them on the side of the work surface. So then when I went in earlier to make my boil my kettle, I boiled the kettle and I put the hot water bottle down next to it, the, right next to the pointy things. And I could easily have skewered my hot water bottle. All of a sudden, I was seeing everything wanted to kill me. And it didn't just want to kill me, the, the knife was in the sink. And I was like, well, what if that made the hot water bottle leak so that when I go through, I then drip water through my hole. And when I, after I've recorded the podcast, I slip on the water and die. And all of a sudden, life is full of tiny things that want to kill you. And that was only in the five minutes between going between the living room and my study. That was a big, long way of saying that I found everything overwhelming and life is too much, Anna. <laughs> and that is the final destination effect, yes, please. Yes, it is. It is. And you start, and it's a roundabout you start crash zooming stuff as well. You're like, what? What's this? <laughs> <laughs> and it's a roundabout way as well of saying um, like kind of how... The, the existential aspect of it and the kind of the leftover after, aftershock of this movie is precisely that is the fact that, you know, we push down these, I don't know about you, but I was a very existential kid. Mm -hmm. I would be like sleepless when I was, I would not sleep at night when I was six or seven years old thinking about how we're all meaningless creatures in the universe. And we were all everyone, myself, my parents and everyone around me would one day die. Um, do not recommend that. For a, for a six-year-old. No. It's not but even great now. Just, <laughs> it's not even great now. I'm definitely going to think about it after Final Destination. I've successfully pushed those questions down for decades. And now they're all coming back because of this fucking movie from the year 2000. But my question <laughs> leading on from that Sorry. is like, <laughs> how do we deal with a movie, a, a teen horror movie, schlocky and and on the surface as it comes where there is no actual villain to fear and no villain to conquer when the villain is the inevitability of death i think it's interesting in the fact that a film like that needs to then meet a third act and i think we've watched an awful lot of slashers where what happens in a slasher is the the villain kills people individually and then the final act takes things down to a, a small group of people who are then you then care about and are fighting for and that exact same thing happens here it's just with death but the movie has to finish <laughs> meanwhile <laughs> death is constantly coming for everyone all the time we're all going to die but you still need to narratively complete it so mm. actually final destination technically has no end 
until we all reach our final destinations. But until then, I will watch every sequel they ever make. (laughs) (laughs) And we've kind of skirted around some of the the filmmaking choices in this, but I want to dive into them specifically because I found it just stylistically both such an original for the time that it's made. It felt much more 90s, like early 90s, early 90s television specifically, than it did even as a slasher film. But as we've been mentioning, all the crash rooms, all the close-ups on inoffensive items, um, the building of the sense of dread. What did you make of the way that the film actually accomplishes... How does the film accomplish being a horror film while there is actually no villain to fear? I think it, the way it does that, and, and you saying about how it looked, I remember the first time, I hadn't watched it in years, and I think it was a, a couple of years ago I, I covered it for the Chilenial Horror Podcast, and I, I started it, and I thought, there's something wrong with the... How am I watching this? Is, is, this in, is this in standard definition? Why does this look like a TV yes. show? Why does this yes. Why does this look like this? It just looks so soapy because it starts mm-hmm. with him with, his, with being with his parents and his his dad does that sort of um exposition sentence saying, "Oh, 10 days in France with all your friends." For, and it's just like, "Wow." I mean, you're really getting <laughs> to the point here. But yeah. and, and I think the way it gets around that and the way it dodges staying in television land is it elevates in its formula. So its idea of the domino effect of everyday items, that elevates all of those things because it's not just one individual thing. And I think the first time we properly see it is with his friend's death in the bathroom. So we first see mm-hmm. the the water leaking from behind the toilet, which then snakes around and kind of follows his feet around the tiles. And suddenly you understand how death's coming. And that's the first time you see he picks up the razor and he cuts himself with the razor, but then he gets mm. the nail scissors and all of a sudden you it's giving you the ammunition you're so involved you're like well that's pointy and that hurts and i know that hurts because i cut my leg when i was shaving and that hurts too and this and all of a sudden it's like the it's like the very best body horror before the body horror occurs which is the chance of the body horror occurring because it's the little niggles it's the nails pulled it's the slight grinding of teeth it's a horrible paper cut. All of those body horror ideas are all things that we understand. So all of a sudden, as things domino to create that and then go into something even worse, we're on board. So it takes us on these little mini roller coasters. So it doesn't matter if it looks like it's for TV. That is so much fun that that's what elevates the the whole film. Everything you've also described, you've used a lot of words like mini and things like that, like mini roller coasters and all the details. Also, just the use of the close-up in this is such a specific filmmaking choice, I find, because even when Mrs. Luton um, dies afterwards, which is... (laughs) We must discuss the scene. Um, Because it's it's borderline comical. I laughed out loud. But then again, I'm a horrible person. We are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
It's just the, the close up on everything. It's both enough to give us an understanding that there is a supernatural element to it, that there is a design, a maneuvering by death. And it's also, I mean, it's a very low budget choice. You know, you close up on all these small things that are so everyday, but also they don't require a lot of space. They don't require massive sets. They don't barely even require the actors to be present because we're already projecting their potential Our eventual weakness. deaths. Exactly onto them, but it's also that thing about the body horror. It's the most, the most everyday kind of body horror. Because when I think of body horror, and I think sometimes people associate with this, we associate with kind of the a body that is transformed into something that should not exist and does not exist in reality. You know that Cronenberg esque um, transformations, something that is um, unreal and otherworldly, but is also physical and grotesque in that sense. But this is body horror that is like getting getting an ingrown to- toenail yep. or uh, an ingrown hair is body horror. And if you zoom in on that, it is fucking disgusting and horrific and painful. And you instantly feel it on your own body because it's like zooming in on something that you it's uncouth to talk about or even show up close. And this is what this film does. It's uh, that just thinking about that. Am I allowed to mention a sequel? Because yeah, do you remember in Final Destination Five, there is the thumbtack on the gym bar where the gymnast (laughs) is doing her thing, and I don't think I've. I mean, there's a couple of sort of high tension nails in horrors, Mm. and there's the one on the stairs in the quiet place, and I think there was one weirdly in Brightburn on a hand going on something, but that particular nail on that bar makes me tense just to think about it because they're just teasing you with these close-ups of feet. Mm-hmm. And, the cl- and and in the end, I don't even think it doesn't happen the way you think it will because it plays you. <laughs> By that point, it was playing you in the best possible way. But it was just, it, it's those tiny niggles. It's, it, it's mm-hmm. the idea of transforming the everyday into something horrifying because technically those things could go in those places. You know, that could fall yeah. there. That could be pushed in that direction. And I think that's that's where it, it does linger. So let's talk a little bit about the actual schlockiness of it and the kill scenes. The invisible murders. Let's call them that. Yes. Because no one's actually doing any murdering, but a lot of people die very dramatically. Do What do you make of the actual kill scenes? And do you have any particular favorites from this film? I think... My favourite is Billy's because it is so rapidly, such joyously rapidly beheading, even though it's, even though we have it totally foretold when we see the sort of wiggle of the piece of metal that the train has tossed up and is about to send flying. I think that one is my first. And then my close to that is her saying just drop dead and then being hit by the bus, which I think was one of the earliest of that kind of scenes where I was, mm-hmm. I think when I saw it for the first time, I think I was probably just like slack jawed. Like actually just like, I cannot believe that has happened. This is unbelievable. We've seen it a lot since, but I don't think anything mm-hmm. dev- ever did it quite as well as that one. But what is, is Mrs. I, Luton your favorite? I, I just on the bus scene, I completely agree. I mean, it's been, it's now kind of a, tr- a trope in its own right. I mean, it's even in, in Mean Girls is the other very big one that I can think of. Yeah. But I, I read somewhere that in test screenings, people, audiences were so freaked out by that kill scene that that's why they added 
such a prolonged, um, such prolonged shots of the close up of Claire and Alex just drinking Alka Sensor and, and they're putting that in their glass of water so that people could recover. just have enough time to recover and chill the fuck out after seeing that rapid fire death and the blood being splattered and all the other characters' uh, faces. Which makes sense. Yeah. I was still surprised. I'd forgotten about that scene in the movie when I rewatched it and I was like very taken aback. Yeah. It's so good. It's so strong. It really is. And and it's also, I think it's a, especially at the time we watched it, it was this reminder of you have no idea how this is going to go. We're willing to do this. This is where we can Mm -hmm. go. And I think that was important especially in the year 2000 because we we'd we'd seen a lot we were tired and then we'd seen a lot kind of eat itself with scream and then be spat out again into terrible sequels so we mm. were we were getting tired again and i think to then have these aggressive bam bam death silence oh god what was that now like mm. i think it's uh it was pushing things forward in an interesting way but yeah my favorite definitely has to be miss miss luton mainly because she's bound to die maybe about four different ways before she actually dies and it is so comical how the death just built on top of one another it's like a little um jenga of death terrible jenga. situations <laughs> it's a death <laughs> jenga because like she, she okay so she almost gets us she gets electrocuted then she um gets a piece of um the computer screen stabs her through the neck Mm -hmm. so she's bleeding out to death then she falls on something and she gets impaled by one of the knives through the chest then alex arrives and something sets on fire and kind of falls around her and then a chair falls on top of the knife that's already in her chest and sort of just pushes the knife in even further and like at this point i was i was cackling because i was like are you joking it's what the fuck is this it's wonderful and it's the fact (laughs) that on her front door is a downward facing sword (laughs) which is how (laughs) she dies and it's just like that whole thing has been there this whole time and you could see it and she was staggering around and she was bleeding and she was making cups of tea that were leaking but no in the end we didn't even need a slasher villain with the kitchen knife also the fact that she just throws that cup of tea that she made somewhere in her living room we'll never know why well she didn't like the mug because it was a high school mug, wasn't it? Was that why? I know, but throw it in the sink, lady. Oh, I why know. do you throw it in your own living room? <laughs> Where you have to then pick it up and pack it to move. Exactly. Or out the window at a random owl that might just pass by. <laughs> You're going to burn the owls? That's just, that's just mean. Owls do not deserve this. <laughs> just meant that owls don't tend to come to windows. So the likelihood of an owl arriving in the first place was low. But sure, you abused the owl. I mean, I, I'm going to send you some TikToks that prove that owls are very prone to go to windows. Okay. Um, and I live in fear. Oh, okay. But <laughs> easy the staircase. <laughs> so, um, before we kind of move on to the, the franchise elements of it all, kind of what do you think about when they actually figure out the logic of death? And the design of death? And they figure out who's coming in next and what they can kind of, what they can expect from it it feels like a a completely a slightly different film from the one that we've been watching because every everything was inevitable and kind of random um although obviously it definitely isn't in the script but once they figure it out we get a little bit of that kind of uh macgyver scene of alex trying to figure out how to cheat death yeah and it elevates it again so i suppose finding out who was next would be a list and it would make it boring 
So adding this extra element of, well, I can help dodge it, then adds the sort of extra level of smarts that I think the audience then likes, because then you like to go, oh, I can guess that. And oh, if he dodges this, but then it's him. And suddenly you're working out alongside with them. So I think it does that very cleverly. So yes, here you can have some more information that Alex has uh, traced from his computer screen. <laughs> He's traced the, uh, the, the layout of the plane and hasn't remembered where he was sitting hilariously. Um, you'd think that would be key, but, um, but yeah, once he's done that, everything moves forward and it, it is so breakneck. The whole movie is so breakneck. There's again, like, I think, what is it, 80 something minutes? And it does not waste mm -hmm. any of them. And I wonder, I do wonder it's, about how the, the screenplay looked at every stage and whether it was always this mm -hmm. pure, because it certainly feels really, really interesting in the way it progresses and then continues with the foot on the gas, basically. It literally never let never lets you go in that last third of the movie after kind of they figure out what's happening. What do you make of the kind of final um, explosive set piece where they seemingly defeat Dev or kind of stall it for a few months? I, of all of the deaths in the of all of the things in the movie, I know they think they're being more dramatic. By having an entire giant pool leak and the dogs at risk. But actually, like, I think it's a bit odd just having this kind of mm. wobbling electricity wire. Everything has been higher stakes until then. And I understand that it's it's challenging to then... Because they, they go bigger, obviously, for the post-credit sequence, which is obviously wonderful. So I actually think that it feels a bit light. And most of the drama actually comes from some moving flashlights running through woods and some exciting music. So of all of it, I think we care enough for it to matter. But I, I also think that Death's, Death's feeling like he's had run out of ideas a little bit by that point. And then he gets all of the ideas for the end in Paris. It feels like Death is having a tantrum mm. in that final climactic scene because it's literally is just throwing a lot of shit. Yeah. Spiky, pointy, fire shit all thrown at the characters, but it doesn't, that sense of menace, yeah. or even of just death sneaking up on people and just killing them quietly, efficiently, just feels a bit lost, which I guess is like, I guess that's character development for death? Could we argue that? Maybe character development for death, or the fact that it just works better small. Yeah. Like, it, it works better in those moments of realism because mm -hmm. we can picture ourselves in a kitchen with kettles and things but we're, we're not so much in crazy cabins with giant power lines falling over which it has to do so I think that's where it loses us a bit so character development for death and we care enough about Alex and <laughs> Clear because we love their imperfect selves yes they're spotty-skinned, imperfect, intense selves. Mm -hmm. But then there is a fake-out ending, yeah, there is. which I think is a very specific um, trope of horror films from po from the post-Scream era. Um, and it leaves it, you know, death comes back, renewed, full of energy, moisturized, mm -hmm. thriving. Um, what do you think about the, the fake out ending in Paris? I love it. That's what I absolutely <laughs> love. I love this giant number 180 coming down to finally get him. Like, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I, I love the fact that death bided his time for six months before mm -hmm. saying, fuck you guys. <laughs> like, I was here the whole time. You think you're safe? You can get on planes. Sure. Try that. See what happens when you have a drink. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe he's just being moralistic. 
It's doing that, you know, teens in horror shouldn't be having sex and drinking. Didn't like mm-hmm. those didn't like those drinks at that table in Paris. Maybe you're just really opposed to international travel. Death just hates culture. Death hates culture. Death hates Paris. Death hates croissants. <laughs> I saw a very I saw a very strange TikTok, not to bring it to TikTok, but I sent it to a few friends because I was um deranged by this tiktok of just someone coming back to their place after work and seeing that one of their flatmates had hung their croissant (laughs) (laughs) that made me think of final destination wow okay wow (laughs) i don't really know what to say anna but what i will say is when you talked about uh, the traditional sort of fake out ending of horror i think that's because by that point we'd all read so many goosebumps books where that exact mm-hmm. thing had happened. Yes! That was a very 90s thing. We, mm-hmm. we were never, we didn't get the happy ending. We very rarely got the happy ending. Someone had to be coming back, and whether that was for the sequel or just for the sort of, you thought everything was fine and it's not. Like, I, I always prefer that, not just uh, because we're watching horror. So sometimes mm-hmm. you don't want it tied in a, a big bow. No, when you always, they, they do kind of feel sometimes nonsensical, like the, the fake out endings yeah. of I Know What You Did Last Summer and the sequel, I just uh, make absolutely zero sense within even the logic, the flawed logic of the films. This one at least does kind of make sense, but it also either kills all the characters of this film, we don't, we don't find out directly, or leaves it open to a potential sequel, which Kind of leads me to ask you, what do you think about the way that the franchise went after this first one? Okay, so other than Final Destination 4, which is the one that starts at the disaster at the racetrack, I love all of the Final Destination sequels. 3 is my absolute favourite because I'm a big fan of roller coasters and I love the roller coaster sequence. And it has an amazing scene where two girls in sunbeds uh, get toasted and there's this perfect graphic match between two of the sunbeds switching to two coffins next to each other which is just chef kiss it's just a wonderful thing so I like three and then one actually one and three are pretty much equal for me two I really like because that has distracted us from you know ever driving behind log trucks ever again <laughs> uh, five was a really nice uh, recovery after the carnage that was four and I think isn't six currently in post-production am i right i believe so in which case i'm really excited about it because i feel like they've always been funny they've always understood that they couldn't do exactly what the first one did so they've added quite a bit of humor into it they've always gone really brutal the domino effect has become even more insane and i think a lot of them just kind of embraced what the first one did and went well actually we'll just do that as well no one's tried to kind of no one's tried to metaize it it's quite enough as it is and if you get it right then that's wonderful do you think that's the kind of perhaps the franchising of of the first one has tinged people's memory of Final Destination, the original one? Because this one is it's quite dark, not just in the way that it's lit, um, but also in its in its ideas and its premise, and in a way that every single character ends, and even what happens to them where they're still alive. It's dark, and I I do think people don't quite remember exactly that plane sequence. Um, mm. especially the line in the plane sequence goes, there's a baby on here, it'd be a really fucked up god. And and yes. that's quite fucked up. <laughs> Truly. Uh, there, there's a couple of bits there that I'm like, oh, you... Uh, and also, it's very clear that this movie 
th- that movie would never have been made after 2001. Mm. You know, it's very, it's skating close to tragedy. Um, it's, it, it, I'm not, it's just, when you think about when that was made and when that came out and then what was to f- happen in history after it, it does that horrible thing where you're like, I like my horror fake, thanks. And I don't like thinking mm-hmm. about it real. And it kind of blurs the lines a bit. It does. It's, it was a surprisingly um, existential entry in that I'd, I'd completely forgotten about. Um, I, I remember the kills. I remember the goofiness of it. But there is zero goofiness in Final Destination. Wait, I lie. There was one moment of goofiness, which is... You could read as a tender moment of friendship between two teenage boys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or as a moment of goofiness. You know, I don't think this is necessarily an award that the film's going to get, but I had never seen a side-by-side pooping scene in any film before. No, I did enjoy his line before it, too. It's like, do you want, <laughs> do you want them to associate you with that sting in their eye or that, that gag in the back of their throat? I mean, it was a perfect line. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, bless them. That's that's real friendship right there. Yes, yes, really is. So before we wrap up, please, <laughs> I'm glad we brought it back to something light humored instead of you know thinking about death yeah. and how it will come for all of us. Yeah. Um, is there anything about Final Destination that you wanted to mention? Uh, I think we've covered it all, Anna. I'm, I'm, I mean, my notes have you know random things like owl who is he harry potter or gross chemical death spurt but i think we'll probably leave it there (laughs) (laughs) anna i think i've broken you i just think that the the notes that you take are always slightly um serial killer-esque but very humorous thank you Um, (laughs) i'll take that as a compliment um louise thank you so much for um your time and for your insight and where can people find more of your work online no first off thank you for having me it's always so lovely to be on uh, the final girls so thank you for having me but if you want to find more of my work you can find me on twitter at shiny underscore demon so that's where everything goes on my podcasts and radio three sound of gaming bits you can find it all there amazing thank you so much thank you and we will be back when the fall of the House of Usher gets released. <gasps> yes, we will. Yes, we fucking will. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs>